scripture reading this morning. Again, we're going to follow along. 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through whatever, 28. 29. Okay. I've got it marked, so I just can't read. Numbers are too small. All right. Beginning of verse 18. Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they have, would, would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. Do not write, do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, even eternal life. I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. Thanks, Dave. Well, this morning we are having our last study in 1 John for a bit because next Sunday starts Advent, and Advent will take us up to Christmas, and then we will decide whether we jump back into 1 John and finish that after the New Year. Uh, that's likely the plan. So this morning we'll look at this, and it's not necessarily a traditional Thanksgiving text. As, as Dave was reading this, you recognize it's the same thing that Lauren read last week. It's not like full of Thanksgiving. It's kind of like, whoa. What's going on there? So what we want to do this morning is take a little bit of time to, to look at this text, unpack this text, but then also transition to uh, what this text is pointing to in regards to communion. Uh, because this morning, after the service, we'll be celebrating communion together. So there's, there's a number of things in there. In, in 1 John, this section of 1 John, it's, it's kind of, kind of a, 
maybe we'd say in our language weird, that makes us think a little bit about the end of the world, or the last hour and all that stuff. And so let's, let's look at that a little bit. So John, right away in this passage that, that Dave just read, talks about the last hour. He says, it is the last hour. And so in our modern language, we think of that, I mean, we often jump towards kind of the you know, world burning, maybe the, these, the different series of Christian books that have come out that display kind of all the death and destruction at the end of the world. That's not necessarily what this is pointing to. It basically says this is the, the mindset of the author, was really the mindset of all the New Testament writers and the mindset of Jesus himself. They all had this assumption that they were operating in the last hour. As we're going to celebrate in Advent next week, you know, all throughout the Old Testament, uh, there were prophecies, you know, about the Messiah coming. And then when the Messiah came, you know, he would usher in the, the, the last hour. And so they have seen the Messiah, and so they all assume that they're, this, is, this is the end. This is the last hour when God kind of brings redemption to all things. Now, we have the last 2,000 years of history and see, well, in the Messiah coming and Jesus coming, he started that redemption, that we all experience redemption in our lives through what Jesus has done. But we also live in a world that hasn't been completely redeemed. So we kind of live in this in-between time. Uh, and the New Testament authors were trying to figure out this in-between time. And so we saw that's just the mindset. Jesus had that mindset when he taught. He taught his people with that sense that, you know, that I don't know when the time or the hour is coming, but I know it's coming soon. And he, he taught his disciples in that way. The Apostle Paul, who wrote a good chunk of the New Testament, had this mindset. You know, he had this assumption that, that this would happen soon, probably in his lifetime. And we can actually see in some of his writings how he's kind of working out in his own mind, like, okay, it hasn't happened yet. And even some people have died and Jesus hasn't returned yet. How then shall we live? So we can kind of see Paul even working that out on his own. And obviously John here in, in his gospel and these first, second, and third John and then a revelation that he's, he wrote all of those, we can see he certainly has this assumption that the end is coming near, that Jesus is going to come back. And that's, that's the, the premise that they, they wrote under. And it's interesting that over the last 2,000 years, I think by and large, Christians have maintained this type of, of last hour approach. Maybe not all the time and maybe not all people, but I still remember when I was in elementary school and I was attending at, at Kidder Mennonite Church and, and Bill Detweiler was the preacher. Um, maybe some of you know that name. He was a very well-known minister in this area. But I remember as a little kid, he was giving a sermon. I don't remember what the topic was on. It's probably something about this. And he said, how many in the auditorium today think that Jesus is going to return in their lifetime? And I looked around as a little elementary school kid and it seemed like almost everyone raised their hand. And I was like, oh my goodness, what's, what's going to happen? Um, but most of the people in that room thought it would happen in their lifetime. If I would do a similar poll right now, I'm, I'm guessing most of you would raise your hand. We kind of have that assumption that it's got to be close. And we've maintained that assumption for, for 2,000 years. And I think that's a good thing. That's what the Bible tells us and calls us to do, kind of that readiness, that preparedness uh, to be here. And so we have that assumption. And it's interesting that uh, if you remember the very first sermon we looked at this, uh, the introduction of 1 John, we see that a vital part of this whole book is writing to a church that has gone through a church split. It's writing to a church that has gone through a nasty schism where the, and we see this language in what Dave read, at, read this morning, those that have went out from us. If they would have belonged to us, they wouldn't have left. We have this very strong language, it's us versus them, those that left versus those that stayed. And we can see as John goes back and forth trying to comfort those that have stayed and trying to convict those that have left and convince them of the error 
in their ways. And one thing I've learned in, in studying this, that really, this is the only church split that is recorded in Scripture. I didn't know that. I, I kind of assumed that there was a lot of different church splits. Because the Apostle Paul does a lot of writing to church in conflict. He's talking about people, how people should treat each other, how to, how to handle these, these arguments and conflicts, but there's never an actual split in any of the churches that Paul is writing to. And so we see all these different conflicts, and we see Paul and John and these other authors writing to churches, but this is the only one where there's been an actual split that has happened that we, we know of in Scripture. And even that, we get this, this idea that, the, that John thinks because there's a split, this is probably a sign that the last hour is really near. Because Christ's body shouldn't be dividing. Christ's body shouldn't be splitting. There shouldn't be this type of thing happening within the Christian church. And so John takes this as a sign that the end is near. Now I wonder, for us, well, we can look past over the last 2,000 years, how many church splits have there been since this one? And we start to scratch our head. There's another, so he talks about the last hour. And another thing that we, we, we are drawn to is the word Antichrist. He talks about the Antichrist here. And I think when we hear this word, uh, again, our minds are immediately drawn to this kind of this, the, this, huge, this big figure at the end of the world. Uh, we might think of uh, Revelation and think of the, the apocalypse and all these things. It kind of All these images come to our mind. But if you read the text here, that's not the language that John is using. He doesn't have this, this big satanic figure in mind. It's not the devil or, or Satan or the liar, whatever term that is used for scripture in Scripture about Satan. That's not who he has in mind here as, he, as you read through the text. It's not this idea of this cosmic antichrist that is coming to wage uh, war and battle on Christians here on earth. Rather, he's talking about normal people. And he's labeling them as Antichrist. Verse 22 gives us the description. Who are Antichrists? And verse 22 doesn't describe this big fiery demon figure or this someone that's coming back at the end of the world to destroy all of us. Verse 22 says this. Who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. So the definition that John uses here is really closer to what the actual word says. Antichrist. One who is denying that Jesus is the Christ. One who is in opposition to the Christian mission. One who opposes Jesus. Any of these are, are anti-Christ. Doesn't believe that Jesus is fully human and fully God. Is anti-Christ. And the word Christ here is very important. Anti-Christ. John doesn't use the word anti-Jesus. Because there's the assumption that these people that left, that went out from them, that, are, that John labels as liars and antichrist, are actually in favor of Jesus. They actually believe in Jesus. If you remember, again, back to the very first sermon on this passage, we looked at two uh, very well-known heresies that the, the community that left would have been believing in. Does anyone remember the two words? That would be like tons of bonus points if I could give out bonus points of those two heresies we looked at. Anyone? They want their bonus points. Docetism and Gnosticism, right? So those are, those are two heresies that were popular at the time that believed that, that Jesus uh, existed and was a real person and, and you know, uh, in some way was involved with the, the salvation of the world. But they didn't believe that Jesus was the Christ as the Bible defined it. And that was heretical thinking. So they were anti-Christ. They weren't anti-Jesus. 
And that's interesting because I think that is a pretty well, known, well, you know, a popular belief today. How many times do we hear people say that, yeah, Jesus was a great teacher. Jesus was a very uh, a great leader, one of the best leaders in the history of the world. He started a movement that's had influence all over the world the last 2,000 years. Jesus was one of the best people that lived in this earth. He had led a great moral example for us to follow, that his teachings on the Sermon on the Mount were, were great teachings that, that all humans should follow and learn from. And they lump Jesus into these same categories of maybe Martin Luther King Jr., who was a great teacher and leader, or maybe Gandhi, who was a great teacher and leader and and started a movement, or maybe the prophet Muhammad, who started a religion and a movement. They say, yeah, Jesus is just like one of those great teachers, great leaders, um, led a movement and, and started, you know, had some good ethical teaching. Now, by John's definition, he would label all those people antichrists. Now, in, in our world, in our culture today, that's probably not a healthy thing to do. Probably, you know, if you hear someone say, oh, I think Jesus is a good teacher, but I can't quite wrap my mind around him being the Son of God and, and, and his death on a cross offering salvation to me. Don't say, oh, you're an antichrist. That's by definition, that's what it is. All right? That's probably not the best approach. I wouldn't suggest that. If someone's saying Jesus is a good teacher, we'd probably say, yeah, let's study his teachings. Let's look at what he taught. That would be a better approach. But by John's definition, that is what an antichrist is. Someone who acknowledged Jesus, thought that he was good man, good teacher, good leader, X, Y, Z, but had trouble with the whole idea that he was the Savior. Had trouble with the idea that he was fully divine and fully man. Had trouble with the idea that his death on a cross offered salvation to us. Those are the definitions that John used as Antichrist. Not this huge, cosmic, uh, apocalyptic figure that would come back with flames and horns. Now, the sermon title last week was something worth arguing about, and we'll, we'll, we'll transition here, but that's really the idea, something worth arguing about. If you think of how many different church splits that have happened just in your mind, you can probably think of, you know, I, if I sat down thinking about this, I can think of four or five church splits that are either part of the churches I was a part of, that from Kidder Mennonite was a split from Sunnenberg Mennonite, and Smithville Mennonite was a split from Oak Grove Mennonite, and there's churches that have left Mennonite Church USA, and there's uh, all these, I mean, all the churches around here are basically results of different church splits, and we can think of all those, and think how many of those were really about this one thing, who Jesus was. John is basically saying the person, the essence of who Jesus is, that's something worth arguing about. And if you can't land on the same page about Jesus, then yeah, you're probably in different places. You're probably, you probably shouldn't be worshiping in the same church because you're not worshiping the same Lord. And, and, and that's probably a reason to part ways. But can any of you think off the top of your head, any of the church splits and, and schisms and separations that you know of, have any of them been about that? Because all the ones I've thought of, and, and, and I didn't do research on this. I was just thinking through my own personal experience and the communities I've been a part of. None of them had to do with that. Most of them had to do with length of shirt sleeves, style of worship, some ethical behaviors that are important. But I don't think John would say those are worth splitting about. Because the ethic in, the gospel, in, this, in this book of John, the ethic that flows through it is the dividing line is who is Jesus? And based on your belief on Jesus, are you loving your sisters and brothers? Or are you living an, an, an unloving life, a life of hatred, a life of darkness? We've gone way down the road of setting the bar so low that we're willing to divide over such smaller things 
And I think John would have trouble with that. John had trouble with this split, but he said this is over the essence of who Jesus is. And all Christians must have that understanding of who Jesus is. Because that's, that's who we are. That defines who we are. That defines Christianity. That is the reason that we'll be taking communion later this morning. Because of who Jesus is. Fully God and fully human. That He came to us. That we'll celebrate in the coming months the incarnation. That He came to us to dwell among us. To bring the Word to us in the flesh. That's, that's what Christianity is. And I think we should be able to worship with anyone that believes those things. That's what John was getting at. Now, as John circles through this, so he talks about the last hour, he talks about the Antichrist, he talks about the people that have left, he calls them liars, he says they don't belong to us, and then he circles back into the passage where he starts talking about abiding. Now, in in the NIV, it uses different words for abide. Sometimes it says remain, sometimes it says stay, sometimes it says dwell. But the word there is abide. In this passage, abide is used about ten different times. Just in this passage. In the book, book of 1 John, it's used about 23 different times. It's a very important word. Because that's always where John lands. He says, this is what's happening. This is what the people have left. This is the people that stay. And he always says, you abide in Him. Abide in Him. As the word abides in you, abide in Him. Stay in Him. Dwell in in Him. Remain in Him. We are called to abide. And as we look at this abiding, again, he used, John uses it many different ways. Uh, there's basically three different directions of abiding. right? So three different directions. So the one word, way we, do, we abide is this, this upward abiding. That we abide with Christ. It's kind of, uh, that we um, have aligned ourselves with Him. That we have chosen to dwell with Him. John, in the Gospel of John, records the the passage that was read last week about the the vine and the branches. That's what abiding looks like. As a a vine is attached to a branch, that's what abiding looks like. So we have uh, saddled our wagons to Jesus. We're attached to Him. We remain in Him. We abide in Him. That's the kind of the upward motion of us abiding to Him. So we have that abiding that we do, our action. And then there's the the downward abiding of Jesus coming to us to abide with us. We celebrate that in the Incarnation, that God came to us, He took on flesh and became a servant and became humble and opened the doors of salvation to us. But it wasn't just an action that happened 2,000 years ago in Palestine. It's a daily thing. John says, let God's Word abide in you and dwell in you and live in you. This is the the role of the Holy Spirit, that God comes to us, abides in us, as we abide in Him. So we have this this two-way street, two-way action that that we have chosen to, to abide in Him, that we live in God, we live and move and have our being in Christ. That's the action that we do. And at the same time, Jesus comes to us. He dwells within us, and His Word is alive in us. He abides in us. And then there's the third direction of abiding that we do together. That as believer to believer, as we fellowship together, we abide with each other. We saw that at the very beginning of of this, this book, one of the first things that John says when he writes this, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and His Son. We abide with Him, Jesus Christ. We write this to you to make our joy complete. 
John is saying when we have this two-way street of, fel- of abiding, us abiding with the Son, the Son abiding in us and living in us, then those who share in that, um, that relationship, we abide together. That we have this, our joy is made complete as we live together, as we worship together, as we fellowship together, as we, we do, all, do life together. We abide with one another. We've committed to one another that we are a community of believers. And our joy is complete and we fellowship with one another and we fellowship with the Father and the Son as we do this. And so we have this more horizontal idea of abiding that we are in this together. And we need each other. And that's, that's a message that we as North American Christians need to hear. We need each other. Because we tend to think we can do this on my own. I can just abide with Jesus, and Jesus can abide with me, and I can be this Christian, and I'll, I'll have my quiet time with Jesus, and I'll listen to this on the radio or the podcast, and I am okay. That's, that's a very unscriptural approach to Christianity. That's a very North American Christian approach. Or as the Bible says, your joy is complete when you fellowship together and you abide with a community of believers. And when you take communion... We're celebrating all three of those things. We're, we're recommitting our baptismal vows. We said we would, make, we would have a lifetime commitment to Christ. That we would, we would be abiding in Him, a, a, vine, a, a branch attached to the vine. And by taking that bread and drinking the wine, you're recommitting yourself. You're saying, I'm, I'm still in this. I still believe the vows I made. I'm still here. I'm still abiding and when we eat the bread and we drink the wine, we're also receiving. We're, as, as, as I receive from the Father, so I give to you. That's what Paul said. We receive the new covenant. We receive the grace that comes through Jesus. We, we receive. We have that downward motion. And we also celebrate the community that we take the covenant with. You know, the, the true communion dinner is supposed to be a dinner. It's supposed to be like the Lord's Supper when they were around the table eating and drinking and fellowshipping together. Today it won't, it won't look like that, but the symbolism is still there that we do this together. The communion is communion when it's done in a community. That we abide together. And one of the symbols of our togetherness is that we eat and we drink together. So this morning as we transition into taking and enjoying communion together, May we meditate on this abiding presence that we have chosen to abide in Christ. That's our life goal. That's our commitment. That's what we've committed to. And that's the commitment we reaffirm this morning. We receive Christ's presence in us. The the abiding word, the dwelling word in us. We receive that and we're grateful for it. And we commit to be in this community, this, this, this fellowship of believers, that we're in this together. We acknowledge that we need each other and that we are committed to abiding with each other through life's journey. Now, we, we have, uh, in essence, a, a form of open table. So we invite all of you to participate as you feel led. If you've made that commitment to Christ uh, and, and you want to come and receive again, you make that recommitment this morning. Uh, we, we don't have a set list of requirements. But we just ask you in the... In the uh, quietness of your own heart uh, to make that decision. And sometimes I think we, we go through and we think, oh, I, I'm not worthy of this. I, I can't make this commitment because I've fallen short here, here, and here. I, I, I'm not worthy of taking communion with this body of believers. A big part of communion is grace. We don't take this because we're worthy of it. 
We don't participate in communion because we're good enough to and we've lived a good enough life up to this point that we have, have passed any test that now we can take communion. Communion is receiving that assurance of grace and forgiveness. What we studied in John, the very famous passage, whenever we forgive our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us. Whenever we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. Part of receiving that grace Receiving that abiding presence of God is confessing and saying, God, I'm not worthy of this, but I want you in my life. So part of communion is that confession and receiving the assurance of grace and the assurance of forgiveness. So what we're gonna, how we're going to do this this morning, uh, there'll be the elders will come forward and give out the elements. We'll do the bread first and then the wine. I'm going to read the words of, of institution. And then the musicians, we're going to come forward and we're all going to sing together one verse of the hymn. Uh, and then we will eat together. So when you receive the bread, just hold on to it while we're singing. After we're done singing, I'll say a prayer and then we'll all eat together. And then we'll do the same thing with the wine. So I would invite the musicians to come forward. As well as the elders uh, to pass out the elements.